In the meantime, if you'd like to open your Bible to Ezra chapter 5 and verse 6, that's where we're going to start, Ezra 5 verse 6, and we're going to go into chapter 6 verse 12. Open your Bible, follow along, navigate on your device, quit playing words with friends. The topic we find here, two Persian officials pen a letter to King Darius to determine if the Jews have permission to rebuild their temple. The title of our message, Persian Pen Letter. Let's have a word of prayer. Father, thank you this morning for your presence in this place. We know you're here, Lord, because you promised you would be. You say in the Revelation that you walk in the midst of your churches, and uh, so we thank you for being here. We appreciate the Holy Spirit and his ministry to teach us your word. He indwells us who are in Christ, and he's here to lead those who are not in Christ to faith in you. We pray that you would have your way in our hearts and in our lives, that you would uh, anoint these words to us, Lord, this morning. We thank you and praise you in Jesus' name, and those who agreed said, amen. Our family loves to communicate using film and television quotes. For instance, anytime something isn't going as planned, one of us invariably says, you're going to need a bigger boat. Some people find that fun. It's this opening paragraph always, it's how I gauge what kind of a morning I'm going to have. So (laughs) there is some research to suggest that quoting from movies or from music or literature can help you to connect with others more quickly. If you say to me, never go in against a Sicilian when death is on the line, then I know we're on the same wavelength. Some quotes are ones that most everyone would recognize, such as, I'm going to make them an offer they can't refuse. Others are obscure. One that Pam and I use when someone is long-winded is this. I love how you talk using 40 words when four will do. (laughs) Giving long answers was something highlighted in the movie Lincoln, for which actor Daniel Day-Lewis received an Oscar. Several times, Lincoln gives a long, homespun story as an indirect but poignant answer to a question. In our verses... The returnees to Jerusalem are challenged by their enemies with a simple question, who commanded you to build this temple and to finish these walls? One word, a name, could have sufficed. They answered by telling a long story. It lasted from verse 11 through verse 17 of chapter 5. And their answer was filled with history and theology as well as personal testimony. So they went into way more detail. And that's why their response reminded me of a commonly quoted phrase from a verse in 1 Peter in the King James Version of the New Testament. The apostle said, and be ready always to give an answer to every man that asks you of a reason of the hope that is in you with meekness and fear. Being ready to give an answer of the hope in Christ is going to be our theme as we work through these verses. I'll organize my comments around two points. Number one, Live in a manner that moves others to ask about your hope in Christ. And number two, live in a manner that matches your answer about your hope in Christ. And so in chapter five, let's take a look at living in a manner that moves others. You remember this, Houston, we have a problem. Tom Hanks made that line famous in 1995's Apollo 13. It's actually a misquote, most of you know that. The words actually spoken by Jack Swigert were, okay, Houston, We've had a problem here. The enemies of Israel drafted a letter to the Persian king to clear up confusion regarding the rebuilding of the Jewish temple. 
it could have started, Darius, we have a problem. And so in verse 6, this is a copy of the letter that Tatanai sent, the governor of the region beyond the river, and Shethar Bosnai and his companions, the Persians, who were in the region beyond the river, to Darius the king. Now, we studied the first five verses of chapter 5 last Sunday as they were a fitting conclusion to the action of chapter 4. You, you understand that the Bible, when it was originally written, didn't have chapter and verses in it. That was added much later. And so sometimes we take portions of other chapters because it actually goes together contextually. In those verses, we saw Tatanai and the other non-Jews try to ascertain if the Jews had permission to be rebuilding their temple. And the result of their conversation with Zerubbabel, who was the leader of the Jews, was to write a letter to King Darius. And so, verse 7, they sent a letter to him which was written thus, to Darius the king, all peace. Let it be known to the king that we went into the province of Judea to the temple of the great God, which is being built with heavy stones and timber, is being laid in the walls. And this work goes on diligently and prospers in their hands. Then we asked those elders and spoke thus to them, who commanded you to build this temple and to finish these walls? We also asked them their names to inform you that we might write the names of the men who were chief among them. Something I really had never seen before in these verses, uh, these and the ones as we continue the letter, throughout the letter they made no false accusations, nor did they exaggerate. Tatnai and company didn't put any spin on what was said. Their reporting was truly fair and balanced. Now, you're going to have enough trouble and opposition as a believer in Christ. You don't have to exaggerate. If someone disagrees with you or even opposes you, it's their prerogative to do so. Not everything is a conspiracy theory. I've noticed that, uh, and of course, this happens to all groups of people. It's not just Christians, but some Christians seem to be drawn more into conspiracy theories or exaggerations, and that happens when you don't check out what you read. And, and with all the stuff that's posted on the interweb, uh, you know, you really should check that stuff out. Uh, you know that it's not all true, don't you? And so there's stories... Uh, these things cycle around about, you know, this, that, or the other thing, and I don't want to mention any of them because you've probably sent them on and you'll feel bad, but, uh, you know, and then somebody will write and say, yeah, that's fake, that never happens, and so we, we have a tendency to, to love that kind of stuff. Just deal with the real issues in your life. They're, they're enough of a hassle that you don't need to make up things. And so verse 11, and thus they return to us an answer saying, we are the servants of the God of heaven and earth. We are building the temple that was built many years ago, which a great king of Israel built and completed. Now, I'm actually surprised the Jews didn't start further back with Moses and the tabernacle in the wilderness. They could have. The tabernacle and later the temple were their center. It was where God dwelt among them, where they met with him. As the temple of the God of heaven and earth, it was far more significant than any other religious building on the face of the earth ever. And so they did go back far enough to at least establish that uh, the temple was built in a glorious manner by a wonderful king, and, and then they brought their history forward. But it's interesting uh, that they give this, little, this long answer rather than just say, they could have just said, hey, Cyrus, search for the permit uh, and leave us alone. But instead they go into this testimony. And so verse 12, but because our fathers provoked the God of heaven to wrath, he gave them into the hand of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, the Chaldean, who destroyed this temple and carried the people away to Babylon. 
Now you get the sense that this isn't mere history. It is what we might call a theology of history. It's an example of the historic fact that God, and I quote, removes and raises up kings, that's from Daniel chapter two, and that, quote, the king's heart is in the hand of the Lord, that's Proverbs 21.1. And so it is highlighting the doctrine of God's providence, the fact that God is actively involved in human history to bring history to the conclusion that he has determined and that we read about in prophetic books, especially the book of Revelation. Now, regardless that non-believers always accuse God of inaction, mostly because there is evil and its resultant suffering in the world, he is working out his plan of redeeming humanity and his creation by his providential involvement in history. Israel was and remains central to that plan. And so the Bible is a, is a unified book. It tells us everything that we need to know about what God is doing in human history, starting with the fall of man in the uh, book of Genesis to the restoration of creation and humankind at the end of Revelation. And and sure, from our perspective, this has been going on for about 7,000 years, six or 7,000 years, and that's that's a really long time when you live to be 80 or 90 years old. But as you get to understand the story, And what God is doing, you realize that not a day has been wasted, that this is how long it takes for God to raise up a nation and bring forth a Messiah and build his church and do those kinds of things. Uh, Not one minute longer than we need to. And so, yes, there's suffering in the world, but people always assume that's God's fault when the Bible clearly says it's our fault. Adam and Eve made a poor choice in the garden. And anybody who thinks that they would have chosen differently, then you're just fooling yourselves. God allowed mankind to have free will, and we want to have free will. We don't want to be robots. We don't want to be automatons. But that free will came with a risk, and the risk was that Adam and Eve could throw it all away, and they did. But God immediately began to work on his solution, promised Adam and Eve right there in the garden that he would come himself, the seed of a woman, and that he would solve the problem of sin and Satan and death. And he did that back in the first century when Jesus died on the cross and rose from the dead. And so God is involved in history. And when you read the book of the Revelation of Jesus Christ, that is what's going to happen. It's not a maybe or a for instance or if we don't get our act together. Those are the things that are going to unfold exactly the way God says, culminating in the return of Jesus Christ, the second coming, the millennial kingdom, And then after that, eternity future, wherein dwells righteousness. And what a wonderful plan that really is. And we know all those. And so this is a short answer with a long history, if you will. And so verse 13, however, in the first year of Cyrus, king of Babylon, King Cyrus issued a decree to build this house of God. Now, whenever we read about or think about Cyrus, we ought to marvel that his name and his reign and his decree were all prophesied by Isaiah 150 years before he was even born. And that's a biblical fact. The argument against Isaiah's accuracy is that non-believers don't think anyone can truly predict the future. And so if you read all this scholarly, you know, anti-Isaiah literature, that's really what it boils down to is they, they assume that Isaiah couldn't have prophesied about Cyrus 150 years earlier because no one can know that. And so if you leave God out of your thinking, of course, you come to these stupid conclusions. However, the same person might think that an obscure reference by Nostradamus to Hister 
means that he predicted Hitler. I'm not recommending it, but have you ever watched any of those specials about Nostradamus? The things that they think are predictions are ludicrous. They could read your checkbook and predict World War III from what's in there. I mean, it's, it's crazy. And so they find some reference to Hister and they think, oh, that's, he was a little foggy that day. Maybe he didn't have his Turkish coffee with star anise or whatever it is. And so, uh, you know, he said Hister when he meant Hitler. But when Isaiah writes about Cyrus, they can't handle the truth. I find it odd and disturbing that many who are in Christ have a contempt for prophecy. The author of the best-selling Christian book of all time characterized prophecy as a distraction and says that anyone who lets himself get involved in distractions like studying prophecy, quote, is not fit for the kingdom of God. You might not know it, but a lot of your Christian friends, uh, they, don't, they don't study prophecy at all. They don't know anything about prophecy and their church doesn't want to teach it. Hey, I understand that. You don't want to get up and start talking about the Nephilim. Giant 15-foot giants are coming your way. I mean, people think, man, what, what's going on with Pastor Gene? What kind of a nut is he? But uh, there is, there's, there's a contempt for prophecy even though the, the apostles didn't have it. The apostles would tell you, no, Jesus is coming right now and people say, oh, where's the promise of his coming? It's imminent but unpredictable, obviously. Imminent and unpredictable. Imminent means we should be ready for it at any moment. Unpredictable means we should serve the Lord with all of our mind and soul and heart and strength while we're waiting. And so uh, we love prophecy God loves prophecy. It's a quarter of what he told us. And a lot of those things are going to happen just as he said. And so verse 14, also the gold and silver articles of the house of God, which Nebuchadnezzar had taken from the temple that was in Jerusalem and carried into the temple of Babylon. Those King Cyrus took from the temple of Babylon and they were given to one named Sheshbazar, whom he had made governor. Sheshbazar is either another name for Zerubbabel. These guys had lots of different names. Not unusual. Some of us have different names for each other. Uh, depends on who you are. Some people call me Gene, PG, Pastor Gene. Then there's the other, whole other list of words that people call me. <laughs> Grandpa, Papa, what else do I get called? Chaplain, you know, so everybody has different names. And so could be Sheshbazar and Zerubbabel are the same guy. Or Sheshbazar might have died early on in this project, leaving Zerubbabel in charge. That's something for the scholars to argue about and they'll never get to a solution. Verse 15, and he said to him, take these articles, go carry them into the temple site that is in Jerusalem and let the house of God be rebuilt on its former site. Now, I think I mentioned in a previous study that when an army conquered a city or region, they would go into its temple and remove its idols. It was their way of saying to their enemies, puny God. And so they would take their idols and put them in their own temple in a subordinate place. There were no idols. There were no representations of Jehovah in the temple at Jerusalem. So all that the Babylonians could remove were plates and cups and platters. And, and that's, I could just hear that conversation. You see, the general sends his guy, his, you know, his team in to get the idols. And, and they look around for a while and they come out and say, hey, there, there are no idols in that temple. And the general's saying, well, what am I going to do? I can't go back without idols. They'll, you know, I, I, I won't get a parade. And so he says, well, what is in there? And they go, oh, there's some platters and cups and silverware. Well, grab those. Maybe those will do, you know. And it's just kind of, I know it's not really comical when you've just been destroyed, but uh, it's it, it, just an odd thing. We have no representations. We have no images. 
And, and that's, you know, God said, have no other God before me, no image. And, and that is a tremendous thing. And then it says in verse 16, then the same Sheshbazar came and laid the foundation of the house of God, which is in Jerusalem. But from that time, even until now, it has been under construction and it is not finished. Work had stopped for about 15 years, but it's still accurate to say it remained under construction. There's a lot of houses around Hanford that you would say, well, that's, I guess, still under construction because it's not finished. There's the famous brick mystery house that's on Oaks and uh, Earl Way that down near where I live. It, it's a beautiful house, the exterior of it, beautifully landscaped. There's all kinds of intricate, swirly brickwork and never got finished inside. I've heard 17 different stories about what is about. You probably think, oh, I know the real story. Some of them are ghost stories. Some of them are financial. Anyway, now it's for sale again. But that house, it needs a new roof before, it's a new house that needs a brand new roof before you move in probably because it's 25 or 30 years old and nobody's ever lived in it. Under construction. And so it seems good to the king, let a search be made in the king's treasure house which is there in Babylon, whether it is so that a decree was issued by King Cyrus to build this house of God at Jerusalem and let the king send us his pleasure concerning this matter. So the truth was out there and Tatanai was committed to finding it. The answer that the Jews gave was fueled by their hope to rebuild the temple. To paraphrase Peter, they gave an answer of the hope that was in them with meekness and fear. Now, that phrase from 1 Peter is always immediately associated with what we call apologetics. Apologetics is the defense of biblical truth against opposition and attack. And we love that. We love apologetics. We love equipping the saints to defend their faith in a hostile world whose ruler is the devil. I'm not positive, however, that is how Peter used the word here. He said we were to give an answer for our hope, not for our foundational doctrines. And the context also is something a little more personal. He ties the answer you give to your conduct, not to your confession. And so what is our hope? Well, lots of things are on that list. Galatians 5.5 says, For we through the Spirit eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness by faith. 1 Peter 1.3 says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his abundant mercy has begotten us again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. Titus 1, 2, we have hope of eternal life, which God who cannot lie promised before time began. 1 Thessalonians 5, 8, but let us who are of the day be sober, putting on the breastplate of faith and love, and as a helmet, the hope of salvation. My favorite verse about hope, Titus 2, 13, looking for the blessed hope and glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. And so our hope in Christ is everything he has done for us, everything he has promised to complete in us. It is our initial salvation, our daily sanctification. It's our future glorification. It's the restoration of God's creation. It is eternal life. You don't need to be a scholar to give an answer of your hope in Christ. In fact, five seconds after you're born again, you can give an answer of your hope in Christ because you've been saved and your sins have been forgiven. And you might think, well, that's not very much. Oh, it isn't? It's not very much knowledge. You probably can't go out and debate with somebody about creation versus evolution. But you can, like the man born blind, say, all I know is one minute I was blind and now I can see. So you explain that to me. How does that work? You can say, one minute I was lost and now I am found. One minute I was a hell-doomed sinner, now I'm guaranteed heaven. My sins have been forgiven. 
And so all of us can give an answer of the hope that is in us with meekness. The people you are around, they're not typically looking for an intellectual defense of the Bible, not really. They want to know if what you have works. They're searching for answers to their hurt and to their grief and to their loss, answers to their emptiness. God has placed eternity in their hearts so that they don't know how to fill it. They sense that there's something missing. Their marriages are failing, but they don't know where to turn for help. We who are in Christ, we have the answer. It's Jesus. Now, sometimes it's, it, it, it seems like there's a disconnect, but you have to go for it. People come to you and they say, you know, your marriage looks so wonderful. You know, how do we achieve that? And they want some tips, and you have to go back and do evangelism and say, you need Jesus. And people are like, well, how is that going to help? But what you and I know, how can a husband love his wife the way Christ loves the church if he doesn't know Christ? He has no knowledge of that, and he has no ability to do that. How can a wife submit to her husband as unto the Lord if she's not submitted to the Lord? It's impossible. And so people in the world who are married and they need marital help, they need Jesus' help. There's no amount of marriage. Marriage counseling might keep them together, but then they're still two lost, doomed, hell-doomed sinners. And so marriage counseling to non-believers is evangelism. They come to Christ, they come to church, and their lives turn around. Others can and will be moved by your hope in Jesus. Just make sure you let them know that's where it is. And secondly, in chapter six, live in a manner that matches your answer about your hope in Christ. Dr. J. Vernon McGee frequently talks about the rubber meeting the road. He means that your talk and your walk ought to match. If hope in Christ is transforming, you should be transformed. While waiting for Darius to respond, Zerubbabel kept the project on schedule. Their hope in the temple was matched by their work on it. And so verse 1 of chapter 6, then King Darius issued a decree. A search was made in the archives where the treasures were stored in Babylon. And at Akmatha, in the palace that is in the province of Media, a scroll was found. And in it, a record was written thus. And so nothing was found in the archives in Babylon. The decree was found at Akmatha, which was a kind of Camp David for the Persian kings. It was a retreat. This tells us that the government of Persia was diligent and that they were not out to get the Jews. So they didn't give up looking for the uh, decree because they couldn't find it in Babylon. They went the extra distance. The government isn't always against you. We should work within it, obeying its laws, unless and until they conflict with the gospel. Verse 3, in the first year of King Cyrus, King Cyrus issued a decree concerning the house of God at Jerusalem. Let the house be rebuilt, the place where they offered sacrifices, and let the foundations of it be firmly laid, its height 60 cubits, its width 60 cubits. Now, this is essentially material we encountered in chapter 1, only there's additional detail. Some people get all messed up here because the, the temple they built wasn't actually this size. But as to those dimensions, these are the maximum dimensions Cyrus would allow. It was a building code. They could build up to that or smaller, which they did, but not larger. If you've ever tried to do anything, you've encountered building codes, right? How big you can put a shed, where it can be on your property, patio covers. I don't know if they do this here, but down in Southern California, they fly over your house with drones and they see if you've built something and then they send out a building inspector. Because believe it or not, 
some people build without a permit. I'm just saying, I, I have stunned me. But uh, so they're busting people left and right and say, hi, nice patio. Uh, I noticed you didn't pull a permit. That'll be $20 million, you know, or whatever and stuff. So verse four, with three rows of heavy stones and one row of new timber, let the expenses be paid from the king's treasury. So this project was not only green lighted by Cyrus, he would have Persia fully funded from their national treasure. But we don't want government money. Neither do we solicit funds from non-believers. There may be exceptions to that over time, but that's the rule. We want God to get the glory, and he wants to be supported by his own people. Now, in passing, notice that the building was hard work. Timbers and heavy stones were the basic materials. As we build together a temple on earth, the church of Jesus Christ, it's going to involve hard work spiritually and physically. Being filled by and led by the indwelling Holy Spirit doesn't mean we coast or that we won't encounter trouble. We do and we will. One of my favorite descriptions in the Bible is that of a companion of the Apostle Paul, Epaphroditus. He's described as being sick almost unto death in Philippians 2.27, but he nevertheless fulfilled his ministry. I don't know if you've realized it or not, but I can be a little sarcastic. And uh, my son can be a little sarcastic. Together we're the sarcasm twins. But anyway, so, you know, we, we, I've never done it to anybody here, none of you, obviously. But uh, sometimes we make fun of our pastor friends and they, you know, they have a sniffle or a cold or a broken arm or some kind of surgery. And we say, well, you know, Epaphroditus was sick unto death and he completed his ministry. So what am I supposed to think? I, don't know, I guess you're just not committed. Uh, but anyway... Don't worry, God smacks us down for that. But. Also, let the gold and silver articles of the house of God, which Nebuchadnezzar took from the temple, which is in Jerusalem, and brought to Babylon, be restored and taken back to the temple, which is in Jerusalem, each one to its own place, and deposit them in the house of God. Persia had a tolerant position with regard to religion, other religions. You could worship any deity so long as you were not seeking some kind of revolt or rebellion. Now, therefore, Tatanai, governor of the region beyond the river, and Shether Bosnai, and your companions, the Persians, who are beyond the river, keep yourselves far from there. Let the work of this house of God alone. Let the governor of the Jews and the elders of the Jews build this house of God on its site. And so Darius wanted to be clear so that they would not have a failure to communicate. They were to snap out of it and help rather than in any way hinder the rebuilding. Verse 8, moreover, I issue a decree as to what you shall do for the elders of these Jews for the building of this house of God. Let the cost be paid at the king's expense from taxes on the region beyond the river. That is to be given immediately to these men so that they are not hindered. Now, while we're here talking about funding, I want to share something. It's about our building. It's about our property and the mortgage. Now, don't worry. I'm not going to ask you to show me the money. And we're not starting a capital campaign. So I, I, you don't need to hold on to your wallet. Just everything's fine. This is informational only. We purchased this property in 2003 for $850,000. We've paid down the mortgage by half a million dollars, leaving us with right at $300,000 owed. It's actually $300,253.19. But who's counting? The last appraisal on the property, $1.3 million. What? Lots of equity. Our current loan is with a Christian credit union, and it's a good one, 
the loan that is, and that it's fixed both in duration and interest rate, and that's actually unusual for churches. Most church loans are for, uh, they're amortized for a long period of time, but every four or five years they want to renegotiate with you at a higher interest rate. And so we used our, our magic on these folks and we ended up getting a fixed rate, fixed term loan, which is pretty, and it's a good one. So why am I telling you this? Well, because it's been on my heart that we would start praying that God would pay off the mortgage. I'd like to just be debt-free when it comes to the mortgage. I don't know how that's gonna happen. And as I said, we are not soliciting funds. We're not initiating any program. I'm just asking you to start praying actively for that in your prayer life. And we'll just see what God wants to do, okay? All right, so back into our study, verse nine. And whatever they need, young bulls, rams, lambs for the burnt offerings of the God of heaven, wheat, salt, wine, oil, according to the request of the priests who are in Jerusalem, let it be given them day by day without fail, that they may offer sacrifices of sweet aroma to the God of heaven and pray for the life of the king and his sons. Darius was a pagan idolater, but he wanted the Jews to pray for him and his sons. Have non-believers ever asked you to intercede with God on their behalf? It's an encouragement to you that your life matches your hope. They see in you something that's genuine. And I issue a decree that whoever alters this edict, let a timber be pulled from his house and erected and let him be hanged on it. Let his house be made a refuge heap because of this. The fines were pretty stiff in building code violations. And may the God who causes his name to dwell there destroy any king or people who put their hand to alter it or to destroy this house of God, which is in Jerusalem. I, Darius, issue a decree. Let it be done diligently. So he adds a penalty. Would you drive the suggested speed limit if there were no fine for exceeding it? Well, you already drive faster than the speed limit, so I know the answer to that. But it'd be more like Mad Max out there than it is today. I've driven with some of you, been a passenger over the years. You seem to have the need, the need for speed. (laughs) Right? Crazy. I take my life in my hands. I, on the other hand, drive like the proverbial grandma. Pam is frequently telling me, you need to go the speed limit, honey. I'm going 45 on a, it's the freeway. What do you want for me? <laughs> I get distracted. And I, you know, the car length thing. What I love most about driving with other people is, oh, who cares how many car lengths we are from the guy in front of us? I can, you know, I want to be able to have eye-to-eye contact with him through my mirror and stuff. I'm like 20 car lengths behind. And somebody pulls in and I have to get farther back. It's like, hey, if I'm going to get into an accident, it's because a mattress is going to fall off of a trailer. <laughs> That's a thing in our family because I'm always seeing mattresses by the side of the road. And you know, a lot of wrecks are caused by debris on the freeway. I think more than uh, driver error and stuff. And I mean, I've, I've driven by ladders and cement mixers that have come off. I was watching a video the other day of a guy, he's a little tiny trailer with a mattress on it and he's gone and this thing starts shimmying back and forth and then it tips over and it's still hanging there by the chain and it's all over the place. And I'm thinking... You that are taking the picture behind it, what an idiot. Get out of there. (laughs) Anyway, do not look at crashes on the internet. Do not do that. Please don't do that. The fines in the ancient world, let's just say they were brutal. You mess with God's house, you'd be messed up on a beam from your house. And so your life, your lifestyle choices, they communicate what is at your core. Do they match your confession of hope in Jesus? That's the point. It's a simple point, but it's a powerful one. 
rather than give you a list of how to achieve that or how to look for that, I've been impressed lately to just let the word of God have its way in our lives. If it's alive and powerful and able to discern between the soul and the spirit, and if the Holy Spirit is our teacher, then anything that the Lord says through his word is gonna be 10 times, 100 times, a million times more powerful than any conclusion I can come to. And so these are the verses that are on my heart to conclude this message. It's from 2 Peter 3. But the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night in which the heavens will pass away with a great noise and the elements will melt with fervent heat. Both the earth and the works that are in it will be burned up. Therefore, since all these things will be dissolved, what manner of persons ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness, looking for, hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be dissolved, being on fire, and the elements will melt with fervent heat. Nevertheless, we, according to his promise, look for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, looking forward to these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, without spot and blameless, and consider that the long-suffering of our God is salvation.